And as you're ripping that, I want you to write one thing on each of those papers, four different things. On one section of paper, it doesn't have to be perfect, you can rip it, it's okay. Um, I want you to write on one piece, one good behavior, like something good that you can do, right? So one good behavior. On the second piece of paper, I want you to write a message that affirms. So like something, a good message based on that good behavior, right? On the third one, I want you to, to, to get your, your conniving mind on here, and I want you to think of a bad behavior, okay? Something bad that you uh, can do or have done or whatever, right? Um, and then the fourth one is a message that shames based on that behavior, okay? So four, four things a good behavior, a message that affirms, a bad behavior, and a message that shames. Hopefully, I'm really hoping that some of you moms have pens or pencils in your purses, um, or, or some of us guys, you know, have, have some of that too there. So, um, so go ahead and do that as you're, uh, don't, don't put too much thought into it. Just write out what comes into your mind. Uh, do it quickly here because we don't want awkward silence, all right? Otherwise, we'll start the uh, awkward silence chant, right? So don't do that. All right. So go ahead and write down those. So hopefully you guys have been um, appreciating the the series so far. Um, This is the last Sunday, so Drew... Drew, in, in such a loving way, said, hey, bring it home. Don't, you know, don't leave us hanging out there. So uh, thanks for the pressure on that. Appreciate that. So, yeah, there we go. All right. And if you haven't been here for that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the, to the last two weeks because what I just asked you to do will, will make much more sense. So, <laughs> but, all right. As you guys are finishing up uh, those things, um, I want to introduce you to me right? This is me. This is my life. I'm empty on the inside, right? I, I don't know who I am. I don't have a sense of identity. Um, and so to, to fill that, I need you to, to tell me who I am, all right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go around and I'm just going to collect from you what I need. So what I want you to do is I want you to take those papers that you just wrote on. I want you to crumple them up and then I just want you to, to put them in here, okay? Nothing, nothing, just, just throw them, just come on, come on, come on, hurry, hurry, hurry. Anybody, anybody, nobody, all right, there we go, awesome, anybody else? You don't have to if you don't want to, we're not a forced, he, he forgot, Woo! there we go. She's throwing it at me, awesome. When I was a youth pastor, when I was early in my youth pastor years, I actually played a game, um, that was, uh, we had hundreds of clothespins. Oh, oh, there you go. Stick to art, not basketball. Um, there we go. Just kidding. I would miss that. Um, when, I, uh, when I was early in, in youth ministry, I had a game with a bunch of clothespins, literally hundreds of clothespins. And we had like a room full of like 60. Anybody? There we go. Thank you, Melissa. Um, I had like a room full of like 60 plus high school kids that um, we, did I, oh, we got more back here? Well, <laughs> Tony, 
Wow, good thing you play bass better than you listen to instructions. There you go. Oh, that was a message that shamed. There we go. Um, um, so what we did was I had uh, how words stick with us. And so I had like, like a couple minutes to where people could try to stick the clothespins on the people around them. And the point was to get clothespins stuck on someone else, but not on yourself. And it was a really fun game. It was really active and everybody's like trying to stick clothespins on them. But then at the end of the game, I had the brilliant idea of having a, a box. I said, okay, everybody gently throw. Nice. Um, I said, everybody throw the clothespins into the box. Okay. What do you think 60 high school kids did with their clothespins? Right here. I learned really early to be very careful what I ask kids to do. So, all right. Well, thanks for telling me who I am. Okay. Can I see who I am? Here's some things. All right. All right. I am worthy of love. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. I feel good now. Okay. Oh, if someone, if a friend is going through something, um, um, I am probably not a, a good enough friend for them. Oh, man, I'm not feeling so hot now. Um, okay, awesome. I'm spending 15 minutes a day with God. I feel good about, about that, right? I'm doing my work. I'm putting in the time with God. Therefore, I am, I am worthy of, of that time, right? Okay, all right. Um, oh, I overanalyzed everything. Is 15 minutes of God a day enough? Oh, I don't know. Uh, maybe I should do more. Um, this is good. A message that affirms. That's good. That's good. Awesome. I guess got to fill in my own. I'm good enough. I'm nice enough. And doggone it, people. Oh, lying. Yeah, I'm lying. But... Um, yeah, so that, you know, I'm going to have to stay ahead of the lies that I, that I do. So I can't really let anybody know that I'm lying. So now I'm stuck in that game there, right? Um, <laughs> hey, this one's personal. Being a grumpy old sleepyhead, um, that hits close to home. Did, Nicole's not even here. She's homesick. How did, she, how did I get hers in here? Yeah, right? So you guys get, like, like if, if I read the good ones, I feel really good, and a message that affirm, I feel, I feel lovable, I feel worthy, I feel everything like that. But if I'm doing negative stuff and messages, I'm a grumpy old sleepyhead, right? Like, if I am gathering my sense of identity and value and worth, um, this is where we get back into last week of the try hard or give up cycle. It all depends on the messages that I receive, and I try to stay out ahead of the negative stuff, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. Now, I'm a Christian. I, I say that I'm a Christian. I say that I've, I'm a follower of Jesus. So let's say I'm going to really double down on morality. No more lying. I'm, gonna lie, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna tell the truth, and I'm gonna be very proud of how truthful I am, right? Well, the problem is, is morality is, again, we can easily turn, morality is a good thing, but we can turn that into a try or hard thing, and that's not where we want to go, right? 
We can try to become a master of doctrine, which doctrine is extremely important. But the problem is, is if I'm more focused on doctrine than in actually like living it out, now all of a sudden I get into this whole pharisaical thing, right? Like doctrine is so important, but doctrine does not save me. Only Jesus saves me, right? Now let's say I'm going to really double down on trying to consume as much religion and charismatic experiences as I can, and I'm going to really try to, to lean into those things. Well, the problem is, is that now all of a sudden I'm a consumer, and I go for, that, for the ecstatic experience instead of the one who actually is there. Because guess what? Most of life is ordinary time. If you look at, if you look at um, like different liturgies and things like that, so much of the year is called ordinary time because guess what? Life can be ordinary. And the problem is, is that we get duped into thinking everything has to be that mountaintop experience, whereas we look at what God gives us. I call Psalm, the, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, God's soundtrack for life, right? And he gives us these ecstatic Psalms that are just like, God, you're so amazing, But then he also gives these these songs of lament to where life is hard. And so he gives us a a song track, a soundtrack to go with the hardships of life. Guess what? 40% of the psalms are considered psalms of lament, right? He gives us the language for when life just sucks. And so, so if we're always shooting for the mountaintop, he says, no, I walk through the shadow of the, the, the valley of death right? I'm walking through that. That's just a part of life. And, and so we have to be very careful, right? We can turn all these things into, into things that they were never meant to be. And, and guess what? After a while, we get really, really tired and worn out. The problem is, until we have a picture, an understanding, and an experience of who God himself really is, And then an understanding and an experience, a picture of what God has done for us, it's not going to go anywhere, right? We don't have a sustainable faith. We're not going to experience lasting victory. We can try all these different things. We can rely on these external things. But until we actually understand who God is and what he's done, that's what it's going to take to, for us to actually experience something different. Now, I know that's a really bold statement, but it gets to the core of the difference between Christianity as do versus Christianity as done. Yes, our faith is doing, right? The Bible says that faith without proof of that faith doesn't really show that we have that faith, right? But that, that the fruit of our faith is from our salvation and not for our salvation, now, a lot of us have, have maybe experienced times uh, where we get really frustrated and burned out because we get in this stuck in this old shame-based system where we fight through the, the try-hard-and-give-up cycle, right? But this morning, we want to close out this series by looking at a new way to fight. It's a new fight that we're called to fight and, and how we can create a new system. There's a great example of this in the Gospel of Luke, It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's called the prodigal son. And so Luke chapter 15, um, verses 11 through 32, you can join in your Bible on your phone or up here um, and join along with me as as we're digging into this story here. Here we go. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. 
The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, if you know history, basically this is the son going to the father saying, you're dead to me already. I don't care about you. I wish you were dead so that way I can get my inheritance, right? So this is a very, very, you know, this is a very deep and hurtful thing, right? And so the father says, okay, divide my wealth and gives it between his sons. Verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About that time, his money, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the field to feed pigs. Now, Jesus is telling this story. Jesus is Jewish. Jewish in the Jewish faith, pigs are unclean. They're detestable, right? And so just think about how bad things have gotten for him to be willing to go and feed pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one would give him anything. All right, this is a shame-based system, right? The son shamed the father. He says, you're dead to me. I want what I want now, right? And so he goes out and he has these bad behaviors, right? He gives up and, and those bad behaviors don't pan out. And so what does he do? He gives up and he goes and feeds the pigs and tries to eat what the pigs are having, but it just isn't working, right? And he has this tremendous amount of shame on his shoulders. Well, verse 17 when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, says, I at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Here we see the shame-based system, try harder cycle right? I've given up. I'm feeling shame. I'm at the lowest of lows. Well, maybe if I just try harder, right? And so he goes to, he wants to go to his father and just say, I've messed up. I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore. I am nothing. I have no identity, but can you please, if I try really, really hard, will you at least feed me, right? I'm not worthy, but I want to work for scraps. Then in verse 20, So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. I love this passage for so many reasons. One, because this shows a grace-based system, right? Where is the father? He is actively looking for the son who wandered away, right? He wasn't sitting there brooding. He wasn't sitting there with a list of, well, you did this and now you need to do that, right? No, he was actually actively waiting and looking for the son to come home. And it says that he felt compassion. That word compassion actually means to be moved to someone's bowels, to their innermost being. When he sees his son come home, there is something deep inside of him that shifts. And it, it, like his stomach turns, but in a good way. His very being is moved. And what's really cool is that this word compassion is, is, is multi-layered. First, there's a sense of grief. Compassion, real compassion, is, is grieving over what's wrong. It's seeing what's wrong. It's not just, hey, 
you're home. How are you doing? Look, come on in, right? There is this grief over what's wrong. He's like this, he's just gut-wrenched over what his son has experienced. The fact that he went out and blew all of his inheritance, he's in there with dirty pigs, and he's trying to eat what those dirty pigs are eating, and he still isn't getting enough, right? Like he is grieving over the brokenness that his son has experienced. The second part of compassion is this. There's anger. A lot of times we think, oh, love is love, right? And there's no, you know, love is, so, love is not permissive. Compassion is not permissive. There's this anger over the situation. It's not anger at the son. It's the anger that his son experienced this brokenness. He's not upset at his son. He's broken for his son. There's a huge difference here. But it's not just saying, hey, you went and experienced that. Okay, you do you, right? It's saying, I am so angry that you had to experience that. Here's the thing about anger. Anger motivates us, right? Anger motivates us. Now, that can be a bad thing, but anger in a righteous way can motivate us towards goodness. And so there's this compassion, there's this grief over what's wrong. We're not okay with what's wrong, and it motivates us to change. That's where where we need to really remember true compassion, true love has grief and anger with it, right? But the cool thing is, the third part about compassion is this, it's loving. And I've already said this, he wasn't mad at his son, he was broken by what he experienced, he wasn't okay with what he experienced, but that love is what brings him in, there's no sense of shame in the midst of the fixing, the healing, the transformational process. That's so important for us to remember, right? I'll never forget um, Nicole really challenging me when I disciplined our children. She'd ask me, are you angry? And I was like, yeah, I'm upset. But she goes, no, 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 no. Are you angry in the negative way? Because if we discipline when we're angry and we're mad at our kids, I'm not okay with what happened, right? But there's a difference between disciplining out of love because I want to help correct and them experience the goodness of the correction but then there's, there's something totally different where I'm just mad at you and I'm going to make you pay. Compassion is saying, I'm not okay with this and I want you to experience something so much better. And that is the compassion that, Jesus, that, that the father shows the son. The cool thing is, is that this word compassion, everything I just talked about, is the same word that Jesus experiences when he looks at this confused crowd, it says it's a confused crowd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? He teaches them. He takes away the confusion. He sees their pain. He's not okay with it. He's angry about the pain and he loves them into transformation. It's the same word that Jesus feels when he looks at the hungry crowds. So what does he do? He feeds them. He doesn't say, oh, you're hungry. Great. I guess I'll feed you, right? He goes, you're hungry. Let's feed them. Let's, let's change what's wrong, right? It's the same word that Jesus sees when he sees the blind people and restores their sight. It's the same word that Jesus feels when he, when he sees the diseased people, the, the, the leper, the, the paralytic, the, the, the disease, the outcast. And what does he do? He cures them. He changes their situation. He also experiences this when he sees the demon-possessed. He's not okay with it. He's ripped up by it. It's not okay. So what does he do? He lovingly brings deliverance to them. It's the same word that he sees when he sees a dead person and he restores them to life. That is real compassion. 
the father is searching for the son. He has compassion on him. And because of that compassion, he runs. Now, what's fun is, is that for us, like, hey, awesome, we think it's running. In that day, that was very undignified. It was not okay for an adult man to run, right? They were, apparently had something against exercise, I don't know, but, but it was undignified for that father to run out and to go do that. It was also undignifi- undignified to embrace and to kiss his son because that conveys relationship, belonging, intimacy. How could that filthy, shamed son be welcomed with arms like that? It's because real compassion does. Then in verse 21, right? How does the son respond to this true compassion? His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Again, the shame-based system kicks back up. The father shows a grace-based system, but the shame-based system dies hard, right? He says, I'm not worthy of love, and he probably interprets the father's actions as messages that affirm, right? I'm trying hard, so he's welcoming me. He says, I want you to know I'm still not worthy, right? So what does the father do? Verse 22, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. I love that. Each one of these things, systematically, the robe, the ring, the sandals, the calf, the feast, the title of this son of mine, systematically restores the son's identity. Each one of these are a very culturally rich symbol of sonship, of identity, in that family. Compassion of the father is, is truth, right? He sees what's wrong and it isn't okay, but then it's also grace. It's lovingly changing the situation. It's bringing transformation along the way. Or we could say it's grace and truth, right? It's truth and grace. This is not okay. I'm going to change, but it's also grace and truth. I love you the way you are, but I love you too much to leave you that way. I want you to experience transformation. I don't want to see you continuing this, but just remember, I restore your identity and then everything else follows from that. He's worthy because the Father says he's worthy. Party begins, right? Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends." Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Shame-based system, right? I've been trying hard. Why couldn't he try hard? I've been here slaving away from you, and he left. 
you never gave me and my friends anything, right? And then he comes back and you just give it all away, right? Instead of saying, my brother, it says, this son of yours. That's an identity statement. What's so crazy is that the older brother shows the power of the old system. He is stuck in it himself and he's going to impose it on everybody else because that's how he's chosen to live his life. And it's, it's painful to see the separation, right? He refuses his identity that he's, that he's been given. He, he says, I've slaved away for you and I've never received anything, right? What's so cool is just like the father was out looking for the prodigal son, he also, I love because, <laughs> excuse me, um, it says that he, uh, he's looking for his son, as well, for his older son as well. Verse 31, he says, the fa- his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. The father shows the same love, right? He says, I've been loving you. You've had everything that I have, right? Like, I gave you all of my life, but you missed out on it. I gave you identity, but you missed out on it. And it's not going to change the fact of how loving and compassionate the father is with the son who came back, right? As a result of the shame-based system, the older brother not only hurt himself, but he was lashing out at those around him as well. The father wants both of his boys to understand that identity is an inside-out thing. It's not an outside-in thing. I love how uh, Van Vonderen in his book um, says that a Christian is... Uh, a Christian is a person who has become someone that he or she was not before. Becoming a Christian isn't just praying a little prayer, then adding a little Jesus into our life, right? And, and now I'm a Christian because I have the Jesus corner in my life, and I, and I do this and I do that, right? No, we are foundationally, fundamentally changed from the inside out, and everything else flows from that. So if you've put your faith in Christ, if you have surrendered your life to him, if you have made him the Lord and Savior and Lord of your life, this is true of you. Here we go. This is our identity in Jesus. We're justified. We're at peace with God. We've been made right with God. We're reconciled with God and each other. We're restored. We're a friend of God. We're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ. We're under grace. We're no longer slaves. We're free to live in a new life in the Spirit. There's no condemnation. We're part of a larger larger family. We're entrusted with gifts. We are chosen. We are called. We are holy. We are saints. We're recipients of a new inheritance of God. We're rooted in Christ. We're built on Christ. We're adopted children of God. We are new creations. The old is gone. Everything has been made new about us. We are clean. Our old heart of stone that's dead has been replaced. It's been removed and it's replaced with a living heart. We are home to God's very own spirit. We are loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled. We are an ambassador of Christ. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation and on and on and on. I pray that you just got goosebumps. (laughs) Because if you are with Christ, that is your identity. Please 
I have this in here later on. Just, just go and do a Google search this week of in Christ I am, right? Like, who am I in Christ? And then go through all these things and, and think about how that changes our very identity from the inside out. Our new system is a grace-based system based on who Christ has made us to be. It's who he is and what he's done that changes everything from the inside out. We are now full because of his work and because of his presence in our lives. We don't have to go around and look to outside things to fill or to fulfill us, right? We're truly free and overflowing. It's kind of like going back to who am I? right? This is a lot of times how we life. Our, our day rises or falls based on our behavior and the behavior of those around us, right? Am I doing good? Am I getting good words that affirm? Am I doing bad? Am I doing words that shame, right? Messages that shame, right? But what if we actually repent of that and say, okay, God, I'm no longer going to listen to what the world says about me, and I'm going to receive what you've done for me, Right? These are all the things that I just said. We're a royal priesthood. We're a chosen people. We're a, we're a holy nation. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm, I'm, I'm all these things, right? And I receive what God has said about me. And we are filled every area of my life. There is no area of my life that it is not true what God says about me. There's no area in my life that I get to hold on to and say, well, yes, I'm this, I'm that. And that's one of the problems that I'm seeing today is instead of, instead of I am a follower of Jesus who, da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Think about all the identity statements that we're trying to insert into our faith. I am a this Christian. I am a that Christian. What happens is that that first part determines the Jesus in my life. It doesn't work that way. Jesus determines every area of my life. And we can all fill in blanks, right? Look across our culture. I am a this Christian. I am a that Christian. No, 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 no. We have to say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a, I am a son. I am a daughter of God. And those things are true about me. Now, how else do all those other things fit in with that, right? But that's a very foundational change that happens, right? I love how that that statement says, I am not what I used to be. I have been transformed. I have been set free. My old identity is gone. I've received a new one. I know that's pretty simplistic, but can you imagine if we would go through our life with that kind of a mindset? And that's fighting that new fight. The big idea here is that the Christian life is a process of learning to live consistently with who we are already in Christ. That is what our faith is. That is what discipleship is. We talk about moving from areas of unbelief to belief and moving from unbelief to un- moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our life. Am I living in alignment with the reality of who I am in Christ? There's a big difference in there. Now we're still going to mess up. We're still going to hurt people. We're still going to get let down. We're going we're gonna to be let down and hurt by other people, right? But in Christ, we're full. We're established in him. 
And that becomes the reality from which we live. This week I came across Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says this, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now that sounds like I've got to muster up the strength, right? Like I've got to be strong. I've got to be strong. You know the really cool, I'm sorry, I am such a word nerd. <laughs> the, the, the Greek word for be strong is receive strength. It's not muster up and try harder. It's literally open up. Receive the goodness of God. Allow the creator of all things to put his strength into you. That's incredible. No matter what we face, we don't have to muster up the strength on our own. The creator of all things knows us. He sees us. He's compassionate towards us, no matter what we're in the middle of. And he says, please allow me to give you my strength. That's incredible. That is real powerful. That, that's real power. So here are some fighting tips for the new fight. First of all, it's going to take forgiveness. Sorry. <laughs> it's going to take forgiveness. Unforgiveness is the old way, the shame-based try-harder way, because the, that unforgiveness is basically holding on to what other people owe us. That's really tiring because basically then we go through life with our little calculator, our little uh, our spreadsheet that says, oh yeah, you know, she did this to me and that's how much she owes me. He did this to me and this is how much he owes me. And, and we keep these, this book of ledgers of, of people's good behavior or bad behavior and everybody's life is in flux with us, right? And, and, and that's just a very unhealthy, tiring way to live. When we forgive, we release that. We release the power of that over our lives. We accept the forgiveness that Christ gives us and calls us to. We stop keeping track of what everybody owes us, and we release that, and we experience true forgiveness and freedom. The second thing is that we have to focus on healthy boundaries. We have to know where I end and you begin, right? And we have to, we have to make sure that we're not trying to control everybody and, and allow others to control us. Some of us are maybe more naturally we want to control and others we're just so used to being controlled that that gives us our identity. We have to draw healthy boundaries. And in the process of healthy boundaries, we get to demolish unhealthy barriers, right? Because sometimes as, as self-protection, we've just, we've just become angry, we've become jaded, we've become kind of like we were saying, emotional barney arms, you know, to where we can't allow ourselves to be vulnerable or we get weirded out when people are vulnerable with us, right? We have to have healthy boundaries without unhealthy barriers. The third thing is this, pay attention to our emotions, now, a lot of times we think, oh, we're just going to, you know, emotions, I don't want emotions. Emotions can be our friends if we allow them to do what God intended them to do, right? We talk about how emotions can be like these warning lights that go off, that clue us in to that something's not okay. And so when we experience emotion, we should actually listen to that. We should pay attention. Don't let it control us but we control it. We examine it. We say, where, why did I feel so strongly in that situation? Where does that come in? What's that revealing about what's really going on inside of me, right? And then the same thing comes true of if someone comes at me with really strong emotions, what's my, what's my natural instinct? Fight or flight, right? Either I'm going to come right back at you or I'm just going to leave you, 
right? But what happens if all of a sudden someone comes at us, really strong emotions, and just say, whoa, 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 healthy boundaries, right? <laughs> and I'm not going to take that, but I can see you're really worked up about this. Why? Why is this so upsetting to you? Why do you feel so strongly about this, right? Can you imagine how different our world would be if we would actually listen to our emotions and examine them instead of being enslaved by them? Because our world glorifies the feelings instead of utilizing them, right? Um, So that's a pretty big thing, is to actually be aware of our emotions and the emotions of of the people around us. Is it revealing a shame-based system or is it showing a grace-based system? And then the last thing is this. The, other, the last tip for fighting this new fight is it's going to take spiritual warfare. Now, I know that that's kind of a, a weird-sounding thing, and if you haven't really been in part of a church world very much, it's kind of like spiritual warfare. What in the world, right? But the reality is, is that set our eyes not on what's seen, but what's unseen, because what's, unseen, what's seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal is that there is a spiritual world that is fighting for us, right? And there's good and there's evil. And the problem is, is that when we start going into new territory that God has for us, and we want to get out of the old territory that that we don't want to be stuck in, guess what? Like, occupying forces don't like to give up ground easily, right? When when you start, uh, one of the dumbest things I've done recently is saying, God, I want to learn how to pray more. I want to grow in my prayer. Do you know how much I've felt attacked ever since I started praying that prayer? <laughs> yeah, some of you have prayed dumb enough to pray that prayer too, right? It's been weird, the things that I've been experiencing, because I'm kind of like, God, I just want to, I want to deepen my intimacy with you. I want to talk with you more. I, and so I've been listening to books. I've been doing this prayer devotional and all these things like that. That doesn't come easily, because Satan doesn't want to give up ground. He's no dummy, right? And so we have to be ready for the fight. Some of you have maybe experienced that same thing in this series where all of a sudden now we're shining a spotlight into the crevices of our lives and realizing how shame-based systems have been owning us for years and generations. And we've been stuck in that try-hard give-up cycle, right? But the whole time Jesus is saying, I see you. I love you. I am waiting for you to come back to me because I am compassionate. I am not okay with what's happening, but I love you in the process. Satan hates that. And so maybe you've been taking some steps uh, that we've been talking about, and maybe that hasn't been going very well. It's okay. Be strong in Christ. Allow him to strengthen you. Talk to God. Cry out to him. Let him know who you really are and what you're really experiencing, knowing that he is hearing and hanging on every word that comes out of your mouth with compassion, love, grace, and truth. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There is resistance, but the cool thing is is that God in his power is way more powerful. 
We don't have to fight based on our own authority. That's just not what we're called to do. We get to fight with the authority that Christ gives us. And that is a really, really good thing. So moving from action, uh, sorry, moving from knowing to doing, from belief to action. Here's a little rubric that you get to use here, okay? First of all, what? What happened? What did I experience? What did I do? What did they say? What did I say? What did they do? Like, what exactly really is going on right now in a situation that you're experiencing, right? Like, step back and just ask the question, what? Then what did I feel? Pay attention to our emotions, right? Then why did I feel what I felt? Why did, I, what, did they feel what they felt? What messages, then what messages did I receive about myself, about others, things like that? So what happened? Then what did I feel? So what is actually true? That's where we have to become more disciplined in this, is actually stepping back and saying, yes, I experienced this, and it felt very real, but so what? So what is actually true about me, about the other person, about the situation? And then we have to remember that we base that on the grace-based system and not the shame-based system, right? What does Jesus, the reality that Jesus is, is saying this about me and makes this in me. So now what is actually true? And then last, now what? Now what can I do? What, now what should I do based on what's actually true? And remember, the, the grace-based system, instead of the try hard, give up, it's sort of like when we are a part of the grace-based system, we get a rest. Even in the midst of the craziness, the chaos, the failure, the hurt, the pain, the uncertainty, we get to experience rest because we know Christ is king and he is on his throne. Nothing happening in our world is outside of his knowledge or outside of his control. He is in control. We are not outside of his control, even when it feels like it is. And we can experience rest no matter what. No matter what we've done. No matter what we've said, no matter what's been done to us, no matter what we've experienced, no matter what the hardships or anything that we've experienced, we can still experience rest in him. I pray that this series, even though it's not an all-exhaustive study, it's not a magic bullet, it's easy to understand, it's not easy to do. I pray that it's been an encouragement, but I also pray that it's been a challenge. I pray that as we go from here, that we can, we can start to see the differences between the world system and God's system, between maybe what we've been taught from, from the culture, from friends, from maybe even church, things like that, and see how, how, what Christ says about it through his word. The cross of Christ is more important, more more powerful than anything we will ever experience in anything else. My prayer is that, like we were saying, is, is we continue to do life together. We can, we can rely on each other to point out, hey, is that in alignment with who we are in Christ? Is that in alignment with what he's called us to be, to do? Um, he, we want to be disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. That's who we are. That's what we do. And so are we living in alignment with that call with that commission 
with that identity. That's why we do what we do. That's why we worship. That's why we study. That's why we have connect groups. That's why we, with, from the oldest to, to continually live in that new grace-based system, in that identity, in who we are in Christ. Amen? If you have any questions, if you need a process, please reach out to someone. Reach out to myself or, or just anybody else here. Don't go it alone. If the Spirit is kind of saying, hey, um, think about this, don't ignore that voice. Okay? Listen to that and pursue that. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you for the fact that you know us, you love us. Just like you were watching for the prodigal son to come home, Lord, you have that same compassionate anticipation for us. God, the same way that maybe uh, uh, the older son uh, was, was not feeling seen, but yet, God, the father was, was seeing him too and had that same compassion. God, if we've been stuck in the try-hard cycle, God, help us to see what you've already done in us for us, and God, what you want to do through us. God, I pray that we would be set free in our relationship with you, that we wouldn't be enslaved to the system of this world, that we wouldn't be uh, caught up in, in things that don't reflect you, that don't glorify you. God, help us to see those things and to, to run to you instead. God, fill our minds, fill our hearts with your truth. God, help us to, to continually talk with you more and more to share our hearts, but also to hear your heart for us. God, we just love you so much, and we thank you for your love first. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Stand together again. How great the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished.